COVID-19 Research Roundtables, a series of panel discussions hosted by Queen's University Belfast's Professor Emma Flynn. Panel 2, Putting Bread on the Table. Hello, and welcome to this panel discussion from Queen's University Belfast on the impact of COVID-19 on our society, and in particular how it affects key areas that come under the Belfast Region City Deal. My name is Professor Emma Flynn and I'm the Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Research and Enterprise here at Queen's. In this programme, we'll be asking what the COVID-19 crisis teaches us about our food security. And I'm delighted to be joined by a panel of both experts in academic matters and also practical expertise to talk us through the issues. Joining me today is Professor Chris Elliott, a colleague of mine at Queen's. He's a world-leading expert on food security and he's published more than 300 papers in the field of detection and control of chemical contaminants in agri-food commodities. He led the government's independent review of food systems following the 2013 horse meat scandal. His objective is to provide safer food for consumers by the use of -of state-of-the-art monitoring tools. Stefan Durand is a director of Agri-Food Quest a membership-based, industry-led innovation centre for agri-food businesses in Northern Ireland. The centre is focused on increasing the level of collaborative activity to support agri-food industry and its growth strategy. Ursula Lavery is the technical director of Moy Park, the largest food producer in Northern Ireland and indeed one of the 15 or so biggest food producers in the UK. She's a recognised leading authority on food safety and and as such she sits on several advisory bodies and is a board member of the Northern Ireland Food and Drink Association. And finally, Nick Wellen is the CEO of Dale Farm, Northern Ireland's leading dairy company owned by a cooperative of 1,300 dairy farmers and employing more than 1,000 people. Nick was recently appointed as the new chairman of Northern Ireland Food and Drink Association. So, Chris, I'd like to turn to you first. Um, We're going to be talking about the impact of COVID-19 on our food industry. But I wonder, can you give us an overview, first of all, of the and a sense of the size and shape and significance of the sector to Northern Ireland? Yeah, thanks, Emma. And thanks for organising this today, because food security is a massive issue globally. And and I have to say for Northern Ireland, it's unbelievably important. Our food and agriculture industry is by far and away our biggest and most important employer in Northern Ireland. You know, more than 10% of people work in in our food industries. And something we're very proud of, you know, for a small part of a small island, the turnover of our industry is about five billion pounds a year. It's a huge number. And if we compare ourselves to say another big food and drink sector like Scotland, if you actually take out Scotch whiskey, our, our food industry is actually bigger in size than Scotland. And, 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 and uh, I think another important fact is that of all of the food that we produce, we sell it into markets right across the world. And in fact, we, we, you know, for Northern Ireland, we have a population of 1.8 million people and we produce enough food to feed 
10 million people. So we export 80% of all of the food that we produce. And we do that under the banner of quality, under the banner of safety, under the banner of authenticity. So everything that we do, do here, and, and you know, we've got representatives from, from two of the fantastic local companies, it's all about driving that quality agenda. And of course, COVID-19 has, has made many, many things more difficult for our, our, our industry. But we, we still hope that the, the industry will continue to grow and actually the, the, the current crisis will actually produce many, many more opportunities for us. Okay, so it's absolutely clear that this is essential, not just for Northern Ireland, but also globally in terms of us as a producer. Ursula, so can I talk to you uh, uh, for the moment? Can I ask you a question? Um, so before we move on to the impact of COVID-19, um, we were also facing uncertainties about our relationship with the European Union. So can you reflect a little bit for us on, on that situation? Thanks, Emma. Yes, indeed. So maybe just a little bit of context, first of all, before we, we kick into the, the Brexit side of things. So Moy Park are a poultry business um, and we're employing over 10,000 people, 6,000 of which would be based in Northern Ireland and, and work with us in Northern Ireland. Um, we are processing up to 6 million birds per week and at any one point in time we would have 35 million birds on the ground because we're vertically integrated so we have our grandparents stock, our parents stock and then our broilers and the broilers are the table birds which will be sold in, um, in the supermarkets. So from our point of view we have a lot of movement across our business because we have facilities in Northern Ireland, in England, France and Holland. So as you can imagine, we have a lot of product moving, raw material moving, both from mainland Europe across into both GB and NI, and then equally from Northern Ireland across into GB and back again. So th this is where this becomes quite difficult for us as an organisation regarding Brexit. And we have been looking at Brexit for the last four years in terms of, of what will this mean for us from, from this was talked about. So what would this mean for Moy Park? And only now are we starting to get an understanding of how difficult this could be for us as a business because of the sheer volume of movement, both for our bird movement, i.e. eggs and chicks, but also then for product moving and whether that's raw material moving or whether that is finished product moving back and forwards. So particularly from GB back into Northern Ireland, where again, we have the command paper, which was um, given out to us by Michael Gove. Um, and then we have the Northern Ireland protocol. We're trying to get an understanding and a, a level of detail coming from that Northern Ireland protocol to really understand what do we need to be doing. Um, and just a few of the areas that, that we have to think about. So we've got an understanding of the labelling associated with Brexit. Uh, but then what we have to understand is that trade going back and forward. So what will that mean in terms of checks? What will that mean in terms of border inspections for us? And what, what would that put into the time scale for product moving back and forwards between GB and NI? Because we deal with a short shelf life product. So therefore, with short shelf life, we have a very finite amount of time for that product to be on the road and transferring from one place to another. Another key area will be labour. So what will labour look like in the future? Will we be able to maintain the labour that we need? 
up to 60% of labour can come from our migrant uh, labour force. So again, understanding that that labour is here and here to stay and that we can access labour as, as we go through the next sort of six, 12 months. Another area will be documentation. So what will the documentation look like? There will, could be a huge bureaucratic nightmare in order to try and trace products going back and forwards as far as potential tariffs are concerned and inspections are concerned. And, and you know, as an organisation, Moy Park and larger organisations may be able to deal with that. But what about smaller organisations who don't have the wherewithal or the resource in order to do that? And then I think you come to the whole custom side of things and tariffs. And what will that mean for us as an industry sitting in with our headquarters in Northern Ireland? Uh, and, and what will that mean from our point of view in terms of the customs and the border inspections that have to go in place and be put into Northern Ireland to accommodate what's happening? So huge amount of information, Emma, that we have to be thinking about and have been thinking about. And we work extremely closely um, through Northern Ireland Food and Drink with a lot of the other companies in Northern Ireland to make sure we don't miss anything as far as that's concerned. Thank you, that was very, very helpful. So, so Nick, we've heard about poultry. What about dairy farming? I'm, I'm assuming that you're facing very, very similar challenges. I mean, it's a huge industry for the region. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about its size and shape and some of the challenges it was facing before the COVID outbreak? Thanks very much, Emma. Um, look, to put things in perspective, the size of the dairy industry here in Northern Ireland, we have about uh, 3,300 farmers. Um, we have a number of dairy processors based here in Northern Ireland, um, employing just over 2,000 uh, full-time employees. In economic terms, uh, milk payments to farmers from processors in an average year would be about 650 to 750 million pounds per year. Um, salaries in around 100, 110 million. Um, we're processing about 2.4 billion litres of milk a year. And interestingly, over 90% of that is exported uh, outside of Northern Ireland. So we're a very export focused and orientated industry. Um, we're reasonably well invested. Um, We've invested about 120 million in capital in ourselves uh, since 2015, as an example. Um, what we need to be competitive on a global scale within our categories, we need to have scale, we need to have technology, and we need to have a brand. If you have all three, you're going to do exceptionally well. If you have none of the three, you're probably not going to be long term. Um, so that's where our focus is, is to try find your strengths within those three drivers of scale, brand, and technology. Um, it's, look, it is a challenging industry Emma, in that um, if you look at it globally, global dairy is capital intensive. Um, it's quite volatile uh, and, and there's volatility within a weekly level uh, and it's relatively low margin. So it's a tough industry to be in. Having said that, Northern Ireland excels. It's got an exceptional farmer base and I'm, I'm not just um, Exaggerating that point, it really does. I mean, the level of competency uh, and knowledge at farm level here is exceptionally good. So when it comes to genetics, when it comes uh, to uh, nutrition, uh, and when it comes to on-farm uh, management, it's exceptionally good here. And that's a good place for us to start. Um, there's good technology in the processors. So the industry pre-COVID was in uh, a robust 
and growing mode. That's the way I put it at the moment. And it was a, um, it was a, an industry that looked forward with a bit of confidence, even though it had the challenges of relatively low margin volatility and uh, capital intensity. Okay, thank you very much. So, so Stefan, if I move on to you, your organisation is a bridge between academia and um, industry. So based on some of the things that you've heard from the discussion so far, what, what sort of things have you been looking at? What are sort of opportunities have you been able to facilitate? Uh, thank you, Oman. Just uh, to put it again, a similar to put into context is, uh, so my organisation is uh, sponsored and invested through Invest Northern Ireland. And... Uh, um, and we represent about 30 organizations from the very small to the very large one, including Moy Park and, and Dell Farm. Um, COVID-19 uh, is a total new uh, uh, thing that has happened into, into to the industry at the time whereby, uh, as Nick was alluding to, was actually doing very well apart from obviously the very big word, which is the Brexit uh, issue, but actually was doing very well in terms of trading. And then suddenly something that has not really been looked at in, in details has come to the fore. And, new, and it's interesting that the industry has gone through really a kind of roller coaster of different issues that have come to the fore at different time. And almost on a weekly basis, new issues I've come up, but in general, um, and, and I had a, a discussion with various pay, uh, various organisations, and including in in England as well with the KTN Food Groups, who is meeting on a, on a regular basis, and and three key areas really, uh, and and I think it was mentioned in one or another uh, with the other speakers, and and that is really the issue of cash flow and the issue of finance. And it's probably more true for the smaller organization, but still the bigger one as well. And that's something that, uh, that is starting really to bite in, in some quarters. The second one is related to, to labor. Um, and, uh, and, and how do you manage when suddenly uh, a large amount of people, first of all, uh, uh, potentially have had COVID-19 or, or therefore are isolating themselves from it, self-isolating. Um, and the other one, which is something that uh, probably is more related to a potential research area, and that's the issue of can we trust the supply that is coming into Northern Ireland? in terms of feed, in terms of raw material in particular, on the basis that um, the, the majority of audits around the, the world have disappeared overnight. And, and the risk associated, therefore, with uh, raw materials coming in without absolutely being certain that it is safe to be used to their own product. So you can have the best system in the world within Northern Ireland, but the reality is that we utilize a large amount of raw material. And when you look at uh, all those together, is that uh, um, it probably the biggest areas of research opportunities that the companies have linked to is related to probably digitalization and technology to solve out a large amount of those issues in terms of being able to either auditing online, being able to um, uh, to, 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 to do operation aspect in a very different ways, potentially in an automatic way, uh, but also in terms of 
how do we improve uh, um, uh, information in the system through transparency of the supply chain in particular. And, and technology is probably the word that connects all those areas. And how do we find ways to better use the information that is available into, into transformation into the supply chain that is happening at a very, very fast pace, at a pace that has never been seen before, to be honest, in, uh, in, uh, in the last 30 years. Okay, thank you. It's very interesting. So I think we've all seen scenes uh, that we never expected to see um, in Northern Ireland at our local supermarkets um, around uh, food and supplies of some of the basic essentials. So if we turn to the pandemic and the effects that it's had, um, what has happened to our global uh, food supply chains? Yes, and, and, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start that discussion, Emma, because the global food supply system is currently in chaos, total chaos. And, you know, again, in trying to set the context, many, many more millions of people are going to die from starvation than will die from COVID-19. You know, it's estimated maybe up to nine million people are going to die from starvation just as a result of the of the uh, collapse of, of food systems, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. <clears throat> I spent most of my morning talking with the government of Thailand, <clears throat> big, big food producer, and their food system is collapsing, not because they can't produce the food, but because their supply chains have collapsed. <clears throat> And, and interestingly, and, and it follows on from what Stefan was talking about, all my conversation was about digitization, about innovation, how you can start to link up different supply chains in, in, in many, many different ways. And I think the other thing is that people in the developed world are thinking much, much more now about what is it I'm eating? Where did it come from? How was it being produced? So some of the big ticket items that people like Ursula and Nick and myself had been talking about for a few years, things like sustainability, the ethics of food production, the transparency, as Stefan said, is those are all runaway trains now. And again, there is not a day goes past where I'm not talking with some multinational food company about sustainability, about ethics, about transparency. So those are the really the big ticket items. And a final point for me is we do live in a small part of a small island, but we sit absolutely in the middle of the world's food supply system because we import 80% of our raw materials and we export 80% of our finished goods. So anything that happens anywhere in the world will have an impact on us. And I'm quite sure Nick has plenty of examples where you'll get uh, uh, disturbances in the dairy industry, maybe in China or in New Zealand, and that will impact his business. The same thing with Ursula. You'll, you'll get big perturbations about what happens in Thailand or Brazil. That will have an impact on my part as well. Okay, Nick, Ursula, would you like to offer any reflections on that? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Chris and Emma. Um, all of that resonates extremely well if you are sitting in the food industry. Uh, and, and 
you know, we, we're very fortunate in that we are a local producer, you know, so we're a local company and we are producing very large quantities of chicken. We also import a very large quantity of raw materials and also we import chicken as well. So all of these things um, really have been heightened over the past number of months. So, you know, food security and food integrity has to be top of the agenda. And, and we work very closely with Chris and his team in order to make sure that we understand what is new out there, what's happening in terms of horizon scanning. But we're, we've, now, we've now pole vaulted almost into a very different scenario whereby areas that you would not have considered to have been high risk potentially move into high risk scenarios. And it's due to the, the conditions that we all find ourselves in. So you are very much on heightened alert as far as food security is concerned. The other area we, we touched on there was around technology and how do we how do we step into this technology? So we've absolutely been talking about it. It's almost provided us with the um, the ability now for people who historically wouldn't really have considered not auditing, for example, a factory. So in the past, you know, not being physically present in a factory would not have been something that people would have considered when actually the majority of our customers and stakeholders are now stepping into that, whereby we have stepped into remote auditing. So we now know that that is working, that can work. What we have to do now is understand what are the technologies that we need to do to make it work much better. And one of the things that, that we certainly are very aware of is our whole infrastructure around IT. So having the capability and the broadband width in order to be able to do this in a very practical way, because that's what's stopping us to a certain degree at the minute in that you cannot get the signal across very large boxes of stainless steel in order to allow us to get that ongoing information out to our customers. Maybe if I pass over to Nick for his comments as well. Thanks, Ursula. Um, look, a couple of bills to avoid repetition. Um, I agree with everything that's been said, obviously. Um, in dairy, as I said earlier, over 90% of what we produce is exported and therefore we, we've always had our finger on the pulse. You have to have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in global markets. Um, like, for example, most dairy CEOs will be able to talk to you in reasonable depth about uh, production in New Zealand last week. Uh, we'll know that. In fact, if, you know, the really good ones will probably tell you about soil moistures and stuff in New Zealand last week. You have to keep an eye on all these variables because they have a massive effect on uh, the global sentiment, but also the global supply and demand dynamic. What one comment that one builder would have is that we have proven to be slightly positive is that we are very resilient as an industry. Uh, and one thing that we have learned about ourselves is that we can rely greatly on our people in crisis. And that's one big lesson that we've actually learned about ourselves as an industry, I think over the last 12, 13, 14 weeks. Um, but we are very interconnected. And from a supply chain perspective, if there is um, the disruption that Chris is talking about, and, and if it is total chaos in the global supply chain, well, certainly the industry here in Northern Ireland will uh, be affected by that. There's no doubt. Stefan, has the pandemic opened up opportunities in terms of the use of technologies and the linking up between um, you know, academia and industry in terms of what we can now achieve that we or, or, or what new 
challenges we now have to face that we didn't know we had to face previously? Yeah, and to put into context, really, uh, exactly, uh, it resonates to me what Nick is saying in relation to uh, uh, what we've discovered during the, the, the crisis. And it's really interesting because all of us, and as individuals and as uh, communities, we have really learned and found out things that we never really imagined were possible in a positive way as well as in a negative way. And uh, I think that what uh, what has come really to the fore is that we are in now in a situation whereby uh, we have um, 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 some some of the areas really that uh, uh, have, have have come out of of this crisis is is the fact that really the consumer um, has very much. Uh, adapted his his habits um, and and for obvious reason you cannot go to the restaurants anymore so suddenly really new patterns of behavior is changing the question is are they going to be in the short term or in the longer term and and therefore what has emerged suddenly out of it is potentially new business models that were not even considered even three months ago are starting to emerge a new way of thinking about food production, a new way of, uh, also I was mentioning about auditing, a new way of thinking about, uh, and also the new way of thinking about local production as well. And I was uh, in discussion with on, on a potential uh, a project that, that could come out whereby suddenly disciplines that tended not to talk to each other very much, certainly are, are discussing about new opportunities, and one of which is about, believe it or not, architecture. And, and it was architect, architecture in relation to how potentially we can feed more at local level, at city level. Uh, and in this case, about how do we better utilize local land that is currently hidden and not being used for production of food in particular. Uh, but in a in a formalized way rather than a chaotic way, and it's interesting that those uh, so technology in one hand, but also new way of potentially uh, um, creating business models and a new way of producing as well is is starting to emerge. It's very early stage, and 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 still the jury is is out to find out is it going to be short term and going back to basis, or is it going to be for the longer term. Do people feel that they can make predictions about the long-term impact of the pandemic at the moment, or are we still feeling our way through it? Well, look, I'll, I'll come in there and I, I'll put my hands up. Absolutely not uh, from our perspective. Um, you know, we're still very unclear even, you know, is there going to be a second wave or not? Um, we'll track and trace lower that, um, that wave uh, I think it's very much up in the air, yet the, the effects of this. Um, you know, only last week our senior team were looking at the lessons learned here, you know, and we're, one of the lessons we're learning is, you know, um, you know, try, trying to understand what we've done well, what we didn't do well, et cetera. But, you know, what we want to avoid is this sense that we've finished COVID now and that there's other things on the horizon. We, we don't think we have. Um, it's probably about how do you manage a business with COVID as opposed to saying we've uh, learned lessons and we've moved on from it, you know. So we're, we're still, unfortunately, in the, uh, in the modus operandi of it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a strange world where 
you're emerging from crisis management, but you're still very much one eye on the crisis, while at the same time having to re-engage strategically in your business. You know, so it's very much um, um, limbo at the moment. I would describe it in our business. But you, you have to lift your head up. You have to look out strategically, and you have to start um, driving your business on. But it's very difficult to be definitive as regards investment and the future uh, with this. Because, like for, for us, the, the food service marketplace. You know, I'd say global dairy, it's probably about 25% of global consumption goes through the food service channel, if not more, pretty undefined. Um, in our business here in Northern Ireland, it's probably higher as a percentage of, of the output of the industry. Um, and it's just a massive disruption that we're trying to manage at the moment. Uh, colossal. We've got lines that are not running. We've got people's on furlough. Um, it's a huge disruption and the uplift in retail simply hasn't made up for the massive disruption and loss we've had in food service. So um, it's still very much midstream for us. Yeah, and I think, you know, following on from what Nick just said, you know, all the discussions I'm having with the multinational companies, nobody anywhere is crystal ball gazing. <clears throat> there is not the time, there isn't the luxury for that. And I, I would summarize it in three ways. The first thing that companies are looking at, how do we protect our people? The second thing is, how do we protect our supply chains? And the third thing, how do we protect our markets? And there is no thinking beyond that at the moment. And again, if I use the example, protection of people, because you know people in the food industry were essential workers, absolutely. And, you know, again, I say Northern Ireland, a small place, a small part of a small island, but the industry working together really through NIFTA came up with some of the best practice in the world for keeping the businesses running and protecting people. And then if you think about one of the largest markets in the world, the United States, their, their ignorance and their arrogance coming together caused a disaster multiple people getting sick, multiple people dying, food plants closing, massive animal welfare issues. So you can do things well or you can do things badly. And I do just think sometimes we, we are big enough to have a good industry, but we're all also small enough to be connected. And I think that there lies some of the big opportunities that we will have. And I'll, I'll kind of bring you back to your, your introduction, Emma, because you talked about the Belfast City deal. And that is very much about, about capturing and, and exploiting data. And it's something that I think our agri-food industry could excel at, really. And if you ever want a driver for change, this is it now. I think, again, just building on that, uh, the food industry didn't stop. So you know, we were the essential workers, the key workers. So, so we have been living through this from day one. So it's not like businesses who are now stepping back in to um, try and understand what do they need to do in order to get back into business. We didn't stop, but we did lose. And you know, depending on the business, you know, we lost a third of our revenue overnight as far as food service was concerned. So you had to try and compensate for that. You, you wanted to keep people working. You, you were going upwards of between 15 and 20% absenteeism in those first three to four weeks. But actually, our job was to keep, keep the factories running, keep people safe. And I think we all did that extremely well. Um, and, and therefore, we've learned a lot. 
what we have to now do is to reflect on what have we learned and how, how do we go forward with the absolute minimal amount of, of um, disruption to our business, but the maximum amount, amount of protection for our people, our people and our markets as well and our consumers. And I would say we can look globally at how others have performed because some other countries obviously are ahead of us. But no one, no two situations are the same because when we look at countries, the dynamics within countries are very different. So we can't just mirror image from one country to another, but we can look and learn where, where it is applicable. And I think and I think that's where science, you know, science isn't immediate. You have to create the work. You have to decide on what you have to research and it takes time to get the result. And I think sometimes what we're trying to do is we're trying to leapfrog and hope that we get an answer when we know that actually research takes time. So we are very much working and feeling our way as we move along this this work. And for me, this you know this will be living with us for a long period of time. If I if I can add uh, one thing is crystal ball is an interesting concept is because. There's one thing that this crisis has taught us, really, although we all knew about it, but has really come to the fore, at least to also the uh, a wider population as well, because the industry knew about it for a long time, is that the system, the food system, is very, 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 very complex. And that uh, um, suddenly, really, small changes are totally disrupting the system. Uh, massively and and in some ways really the panic buying uh, is is a, a symptoms of really the, the consumers was not stupid as as the media was portraying it actually they were right because potentially we were very close to not being able to supply not because we didn't have the supplies around the world but because we couldn't move that supply uh, and and for me it's uh, if there's one thing that we've uh, uh, that it taught us is actually not only it's very complex, but at the moment we do not have the tools uh, anywhere to be able to understand in real uh, time what actually is happening around the, the rest of the world at any one time, uh, because this supply at the moment, this uh, system is is far too complex. And and to add to Nick is. It definitely is one other thing that is taught us uh, um, is that the adaptability and the ability for the industry to have a uh, 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 move into very, very difficult situations shows really are able the industry. And I'm talking the entire supply chain from the farmers to the retailers and the producers in the middle have, have really been uh, doing marvel. Of, of of moving goods into uh, the most uh, incredible situation and and, uh, and 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 that's something that really potentially you were saying at the beginning is what is the risk for the consumer I think the risk is very lim little little because they because of really the, the ability for the industry to adapt so quickly so um Chris mentioned uh I mean, it's one form of government intervention and the importance of the Belfast region city deal. Now, that's a long term game. And as much as we at Queen's are beginning to align our activities to that investment, I'm just wondering whether or not 
anybody has any reflections, either in terms of short-term interventions or longer-term interventions that they'd like to see in terms of government support for the challenges that you've outlined so far? Well, I mean, I think there, there is massive call for government interventions. And, you know, to start again, the first intervention has to be to feed in the UK the thousands and thousands of people who are going hungry. You know, it, it is catastrophic. I, I will tell you, the food aid charities, you know, that, that I contact say there are 300, 400 percent more people requiring um, food parcels every day of the week now. So, you know, in, in one of the world's most developed countries, should that be the situation? And the answer is clearly not. And then I think in terms of some of the short term things that we have talked about, I, I talked about the chaos in the world's food system. I, I really do think there has to be short term interventions to make sure that, you know, the 40 plus percent of the food that we import into the UK has the right safety standards, is authentic. And, and some of the things that I hear about going on in different parts of the world are really very scary. And, and, and we need the government to step in there. I'm not sure if Ursula or Nick would agree with me. And I tend to say controversial things, but you know, during the Second World War, we, we introduced rationing and it was run by the government. In the COVID crisis, the government basically just said to the food industry, get on with it. You look after it because we actually don't know how to anymore. So I think the government has to really start to think about what is our policy for agriculture, food production in the UK? Because, you know, another COVID crisis a few years down, down the road, you know, we will really struggle and we will not have the resilience that, that's needed to keep a, a a food supply system in place for the UK? I, I would say, Chris, one of the key things that's needed is uh, for the government to be listening. So I think, I think what's required is that they tap into the right stakeholders so that they're getting, they're getting up-to-date information from those who are in the middle of the, the production supply chain. So in whether it's from a farming perspective, from a processing, from a retail, from a distribution, um, and, and certainly there is there are a couple of, of um, sort of examples of that whereby DEFRA, for example, have stepped in to, to be speaking with the um, industry directly. And I think that has paid dividends because I don't think I don't think our government was close enough to what was actually happening on the ground. And I think this gives them the ability, provided they listen to the, the issues that are, are occurring and how can they support. I think that is what will make a difference, is the acceptance that actually the people who are on the ground and doing the job know what the issues are and therefore they're the ones who we have to be speaking with in order to get the right action taken. Um, and, and be, you know, be agile with the action that, that they're going to be taking and really, really promote our agri-food industry because historically we have not been held up as an important industry in the UK. 
you know, so effectively, if you're not automotive in the UK, we, you know, agri-food was a very poor relation. So I think that's important as well. So Nick or Stefan, is there anything that you would like to add to this? What would you like to see in terms of government support? Well, look, um, just to repeat, uh, the relevance of agri-food here to the economy in Northern Ireland, um, like it's, it's, it's significant, you know, um, it's 16% of our uh, economy. Um, it's uh, a huge part of, of, of our employment here. And those, those figures have been quoted earlier. So look, I would look at it in two ways. I would say, first of all, I, I would actually say that the government has been quite responsive to the crisis early on. Uh, if you look at sea bills, furlough, uh, if you look at the short-term grants and SMEs uh, and what they're talking to specific industries about, I'd say in the short term, reactively, uh, government appear to be listening. And I would say that from a, you know, a DEFRA perspective from Westminster and DRA here, um, there has been reasonably good dialogue and good action in fairness. So I would give credit where credit is due. Um, that's very short term, obviously. Um, looking out, the, the, the challenges are still there for our industry. And I go back to the, to the three principles I said before around scale, um, technology, um, or, or a brand. Look, and I, I think government needs to reposition its, its, its partnership here with, 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 with agri-food. Um, on, on scale, I think we need to have a, you know, a grant system around productivity. Uh, the APHIS grant system at the moment uh, through INI it's been cumbersome, it's been slow. We need that to be released and we need that to get into action. Um, from a brand perspective, I think a marketing body here in Northern Ireland uh, is well overdue uh, and it's incumbent on industry and government to coordinate and get that up and running and talk about what's great, what's different about Northern Ireland food, what differentiates us and what will bring some value add. And maybe instead of calling it a marketing body, call it a value add body, but we need to get something whereby we, we create more value from the same amount of food that we produce. And obviously, from an innovation point of view, whether that's RDEC, whether it's working with yourselves in Queens, whether it's government support, like we need to be driving more innovation in the industry and a bigger conversation about how we do that. Um, so on all three, I think there is uh, work to be done and thinking to be done also. So Stefan, innovation in the industry, it's almost like he's given you the question. Yeah. So, um, first of all, um, a few a few remarks that is follow on from uh, from uh, Ursula and, and Nick in particular. But um, I think I'll also agree very much with Nick is that actually the government for once has been very quick to try their hardest really to help, and and I've seen that at local level, and I've seen it at at UK level, but also in Ireland. But the issue that they faced is they not always really translated it into listening to the experts. And the experts are not coming from the government. We have lost the experts over the years uh, with a lot of reduction in, in budgets in relation to, uh, in particular, in, in the area of food. And, and, but they are not translating it into really this um, listening mode to understand really the real issues and translating it into really rapid response uh, to, to, to such a crisis. 
uh, it's still the them and us and it's changing but it's now they, that they realize that they need to listen they are actually don't always know how uh, but they all know they all know that really innovation will be the solution to a lot of the problems so now it's it's about how do we create uh, environments and, and agri-food quest is one of them but it's certainly not the only one how do we create an environment whereby uh, the information that will be directed to them will help the government really to make the right decisions in relation to where to spend the money to be the most efficient to come out of the crisis that is still very much here and i think people may be sometimes forgetting about it it's still very much here and and if it's not here in relation to COVID at the moment, it's bubbling under and it's bubbling under in relation to Brexit and it's bubbling under in relation to in relation to uh, the wider issue of how do we collaborate in terms of uh, innovation. And I will finish with this is you do not do innovations in a bubble. It has to be you can spend as much money as possible at the UK government level, but it needs to be in collaboration with many other uh, uh, countries and, and to start with in Northern Ireland is how do we uh, create the environment that will actually drive innovation at the Isle of Ireland because we've got the same issue. Uh, it's not because you are sitting in Monaghan or Armagh that you've got different issues. The issues are, are absolutely the same. So how do we create an environment that allow for innovation at the Isle of Ireland level is probably the most important one and it was good to see um, some important initiatives, although small at this moment, um, but initiatives nonetheless uh, of really trying to drive some research money uh, in relation to the whole island uh, uh, context. Uh, and it's too small and it's uh, too late almost. So how do we accelerate this? This for me is one of, going to be one of the key. So I think um, I think the pandemic has absolutely provided a sort of um, uh, a kind of a, a catalyst around some of the opportunities and some of the challenges that we have in the sector. And I think absolutely in terms of capacity um, and uh, approaching some of these challenges from an all island perspective and being able to draw from the opportunities that there are both in the south and the north gives us some way, especially within the academic industry interface, one way of being able to kind of focus on those challenges and opportunities. Um, I'd like to, it's a very interesting discussion, I'd like to bring it to a close. Um, and I wonder whether or not you have any final thoughts about what's going to happen next or what you'd like to see happen next. I'll open it up to anybody who would like to, to offer an answer. Okay, <clears throat> I think the what what Stefan mentioned, what you followed up with, is thinking about the all island approach is incredibly important. When things go badly in any part of this island, it impacts the whole island. And I think if we start to think about how to do things better together, it can only be be for the good. So an all island approach to really driving. The, the integrity of everything that we produce on this island for local consumers, but also for those millions and millions of people who, who eat our, our food right across the world. Emma, giving you a very short answer, what would I like to see? I'd like to see people having confidence that they could go out 
and eat normally again and we can get this industry back to an evil and we can all socially and economically come back to normality. <laughs> I'll give a hear hear to that one, definitely. Ursula, Stefan? Yeah, I think um, we talked about collaboration and I think, you know, I think that's what's really, really important. It's that, it's not, you know, we collaborate um, and we have the island of Ireland and we have the UK. So that collaboration is extremely important to make sure that whatever is happening, so whether it's a vaccine and, you know, which allows us uh, and allows people to have more confidence in, in coming to work and spending money in, in getting out and socialising with people in a safe way. What we want is we want confidence back, uh, both in, with people and with, with their economy as well, is what I would say. Yeah, and um, to really uh, uh, further what has been already said, for me, it, I want to say, I don't want to see people uh, having to worry about where the next meal is going to come from. And, and, and whatever you can, we can really work on, on business, we can work on research, but the reality is that government and, and uh, all society needs to solve this one out absolutely as, as a key priority. Following on uh, from also actually your, your first point around uh, uh, global, uh, sorry, the um, uh, city deal in particular is that the opportunity associated with the money that is going to come in into Northern Ireland and the opportunity associated with driving innovation to really bring this time Northern Ireland is not, I'm coming from a, from a Frenchman and therefore not a local. I always find it interesting that the Northern Irish are unbelievable at what they do, but they don't shout about it. Um, and, and, and that's one thing that always uh, annoys me because you are incredible in terms of innovation, in terms of, I mean, you invented some unbelievable things, but you're not shouting about it. And for once, I would say uh, there is an opportunity to shout about it through the city deal and in particular through driving Northern Ireland as a centre. I'm, I'm talking a world centre in relation to digitalization and how it can help not only food systems, but also health of the nations in, in equal measure. For me, that would be my wish list really for, um, for what, uh, what comes next. Thank you. I think that's a really interesting and important note to finish on. I think we do all want everybody to have enough safe, secure food wherever they are in the globe and that we have a role to play within that in terms of using technology as an academic community, working with our industrial partners to help overcome some of those challenges um, to be able to do that. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. I actually want to challenge you all because I think it would be good for us to come back in a year's time find out what we've predicted and whether or not how we are seeing the future and what new challenges we have within a year's time because i think this pandemic has shown that we it's very difficult for us to be able to predict what's going to happen in the future and i think some of you have acknowledged that so 12 months time doesn't seem like a very long time but actually a lot can happen over in even in 14 weeks um it's been exceptionally interesting i'd like to thank you all very very much for your really insightful comments and i'd like to thank everybody who's been listening as well so thank you very much everybody For more on this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast Shaping a Better World podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
or for subtitled video versions, visit go.qub.ac.uk slash roundtables.